Chapter Four, Part Two of Lady Molly of Scotland Yard by Baroness Orsi. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Fordwich Castle Mystery, Part Two. From the very first, mind you, the public took a more than usually keen interest in this mysterious occurrence. The evening papers on the very day of the murder were ablaze with flaming headlines such as The Tragedy at Fordwich Castle, Mysterious Murder of an Important Witness grave charges against persons in high life, and so forth. As time went on, the mystery deepened more and more, and I suppose Lady Molly must have had an inkling that sooner or later the chief would have to rely on her help and advice, for she sent me down to attend the inquest, and gave me strict orders to keep eyes and ears open for every detail in connection with the crime, however trivial it might seem. She herself remained in town, awaiting a summons from the chief." The inquest was held in the dining-room of Fordwich Castle, and the noble hall was crowded to its utmost when the coroner and jury finally took their seats, after having viewed the body of the poor murdered woman upstairs. The scene was dramatic enough to please any novelist, and an awed hush descended over the crowd when, just before the proceedings began, a door was thrown open, and in walked, stiff and erect, the Baroness Doublekirk, escorted by her niece, Miss Henriette, and closely followed by her cousin, Captain Jack, of the guards. The old lady's face was as indifferent and haughty as usual, and so was that of her athletic niece. Captain Jack, on the other hand, looked troubled and flushed. Everyone noted that, directly he entered the room, his eye sought a small, dark figure that sat silent and immovable beside the portly figure of the great lawyer, Mr. Hubert McKinley. This was Miss Joan Duplessis, in a plain black stuff gown, her young face pale and tear-stained. Dr. Walker, the local practitioner, was, of course, the first witness called. His evidence was purely medical. He deposed to having made an examination of the body, and stated that he found that a handkerchief saturated with chloroform had been pressed to the woman's nostrils, probably while she was asleep, her throat having subsequently been cut with a sharp knife. Death must have been instantaneous, as the poor thing did not appear to have struggled at all. In answer to a question from the coroner, the doctor said that no great force or violence would be required for the gruesome deed, since the victim was undeniably unconscious when it was done. At the same time it argued unusual coolness and determination. The handkerchief was produced, also the knife. The former was a bright-colored one, stated to be the property of the deceased. The latter was a foreign, old-fashioned hunting-knife, one of a panoply of small arms and other weapons which adorned a corner of the hall. It had been found by Detective Elliot in a clump of gorse on the adjoining golf links. There could be no question that it had been used by the murderer for his fell purpose, since at the time it was found it still bore traces of blood. Captain Jack was the next witness called. He had very little to say, as he merely saw the body from across the room, and immediately closed the door again, and— having begged his cousin to compose herself, called his own valet, and sent him off for the doctor. Some of the staff of Fordwich Castle were called, all of whom testified to the Indian woman's curious taciturnity, which left her quite isolated among her fellow-servants. Miss Henriette's maid, however, Jane Partlett, had one or two more interesting facts to record. She seems to have been more intimate with the deceased woman than anyone else, and on one occasion, at least, had quite a confidential talk with her. "'She talked chiefly about her mistress,' said Jane, in answer to a question from the coroner, "'to whom she was most devoted. 
She told me that she loved her so she would readily die for her. Of course, I thought that silly-like, and just mad foreign talk. But Runa was very angry when I laughed at her, and then she undid her dress in front and showed me some papers which were sewn in the lining of her dress. "'All these papers, my little missy's fortune,' she said to me. "'Runa guard these with her life. Someone must kill Runa before taking them from her.' "'This was about six weeks ago,' continued Jane, whilst a strange feeling of awe seemed to descend upon all those present whilst the girl spoke. Lately she had become much more silent, and on my once referring to the papers, she turned on me savage-like and told me to hold my tongue. Asked if she had mentioned the incident of the papers to any one, Jane replied in the negative. "'Except to Miss Henriette, of course,' she added, after a slight moment of hesitation. Throughout all these preliminary examinations, Lady Devilkirk, sitting between her cousin Captain Jack and her niece Henriette, had remained quite silent, in an erect attitude, expressive of haughty indifference. Henriette, on the other hand, looked distinctly bored. Once or twice she had yawned audibly, which caused quite a feeling of anger against her among the spectators. Such callousness in the midst of so mysterious a tragedy, and when her own sister was obviously in such deep sorrow, impressed everyone very unfavorably. It was well known that the young lady had had a fencing lesson, just before the inquest, in the room immediately below that where Runa lay dead, and that within an hour of the discovery of the tragedy she was calmly playing golf. Then Miss Joan Duplessis was called. When the young girl stepped forward there was that awed hush in the room which usually falls upon an attentive audience when the curtain is about to rise on the crucial act of a dramatic play. But she was calm and self-possessed, and wonderfully pathetic-looking in her deep black, and with the obvious lines of sorrow which the sad death of a faithful friend had traced on her young face. In answer to the coroner she gave her name as Joan Clarissa Duplessis, and briefly stated that until the day of her servant's death she had been a resident at Fordwich Castle, but that since then she had left that temporary home, and had taken up her abode at the Devilkirk Arms, a quiet little hostelry on the outskirts of the town. There was a distinct feeling of astonishment on the part of those who were not aware of this fact, and then the coroner said kindly, "'You were born, I think, in Pondicherry in India, and are the younger daughter of Captain and Mrs. Duplessis, who was own sister to her ladyship?' "'I was born in Pondicherry,' replied the young girl quietly, "'and I am the only legitimate child of the late Captain and Mrs. Duplessis, own sister to her ladyship.' A wave of sensation, quickly suppressed by the coroner, went through the crowd at these words. The emphasis which the witness had put on the word legitimate could not be mistaken, and everyone felt that here must lie the clue to the so far impenetrable mystery of the Indian woman's death. All eyes were now turned on old lady Dabblekirk and on her niece Henriette, but the two ladies were carrying on a whispered conversation together, and had apparently ceased to take any further interest in the proceedings. "'The deceased was your confidential maid, was she not?' asked the coroner, after a slight pause. "'Yes.' "'She came over to England with you recently?' "'Yes. She had to accompany me, in order to help me make good my claim to being my late mother's only legitimate child, and therefore the heir to the barony of Dabblekirk.' Her voice had trembled a little as she said this, but now, as breathless silence reigned in the room, she seemed to make a visible effort to control herself, and replying to the coroner's question, she gave a clear and satisfactory account of her terrible discovery of her faithful servant's death. 
Her evidence had lasted about a quarter of an hour or so, when suddenly the coroner put the momentous question to her. "'Do you know anything about the papers which the deceased woman carried about her person, and reference to which has already been made?' "'Yes,' she replied quietly. "'They were the proofs relating to my claim. My father, Captain Duplessis, had in early youth, and before he met my mother, contracted a secret union with a half-caste woman who was Runa's own sister. Being tired of her, he chose to repudiate her. She had no children, but the legality of the marriage was never for a moment in question. After that, he married my mother, and his first wife subsequently died, chiefly of a broken heart, but her death only occurred two months after the birth of my sister Henriette. My father, I think, had been led to believe that his first wife had died some two years previously, and he was no doubt very much shocked when he realized what a grievous wrong he had done our mother. In order to mend matters somewhat, he and she went through a new form of marriage, a legal one this time, and my father paid a lot of money to Runa's relatives to have the matter hushed up. Less than a year after this second, and only legal, marriage, I was born, and my mother died. Then these papers, of which so much has been said, what did they consist of? There were the marriage certificates of my father's first wife, and two sworn statements as to her death, two months after the birth of my sister Henriette, one by Dr. Reynaud, who was at the time a well-known medical man in Pondicherry, and the other by Runa herself, who had held her dying sister in her arms. Dr. Reynaud is dead, and now Runa has been murdered, and all the proofs have gone with her. Her voice broke in a passion of sobs, which with manifest self-control she quickly suppressed. In that crowded court you could have heard a pin drop. So great was the tension of intense excitement and attention. "'Then those papers remained in your maid's possession? Why was that?' asked the coroner. "'I did not dare to carry the papers about with me,' said the witness, while a curious look of terror crept into her young face as she looked across at her aunt and sister. "'Runa would not part with them.' She carried them in the lining of her dress, and at night they were all under her pillow. After her, her death, and when Dr. Walker had left, I thought it my duty to take possession of the papers, which meant my whole future to me, and which I desired then to place in Mr. McKinley's charge. But though I carefully searched the bed and all the clothing by my poor Runa's side, I did not find the papers. They were gone. I won't attempt to describe to you the sensation caused by the deposition of this witness. All eyes wandered from her pale young face to that of her sister, who sat almost opposite to her, shrugging her athletic shoulders and gazing at the pathetic young figure before her with callous and haughty indifference. "'Now, putting aside the question of the papers for the moment,' said the coroner after a pause, "'do you happen to know anything of your late servant's private life? Had she an enemy, or perhaps a lover?' "'No,' replied the girl." Runa's whole life was centered in me and in my claim. I had often begged her to place our papers in Mr. McKinley's charge, but she would trust no one. I wish she had obeyed me, here moaned the girl involuntarily, and I should not have lost what means my whole future to me, and the being who loved me best in all the world would not have been so foully murdered. Of course it was terrible to see this young girl thus instinctively, and surely unintentionally, proffering so awful an accusation against those who stood so near to her, that the whole case had become hopelessly involved and mysterious, nobody could deny. Can you imagine the mental picture formed in the mind of all present by the story, so pathetically told, 
of this girl who had come over to England in order to make good her claim, which she felt to be just, and who, in one fell swoop, saw that claim rendered very difficult to prove through the dastardly murder of her principal witness? That the claim was seriously jeopardized by the death of Runa and the disappearance of the papers was made very clear, mind you, through the statements of Mr. McKinley, the lawyer. He could not say very much, of course, and his statements could never have been taken as actual proof, because Runa and Joan had never fully trusted him, and had never actually placed the proofs of the claim in his hands. He certainly had seen the marriage certificate of Captain Duplessis's wife, and a copy of this, as he very properly stated, could easily be obtained. The woman seems to have died during the great cholera epidemic of 1881, when, owing to the great number of deaths which occurred, the deceit and concealment practiced by the natives at Pondicherry, and the supineness of the French government, death certificates were very casually, and often incorrectly, made out. Runa had come over to England ready to swear that her sister had died in her arms, two months after the birth of Captain Duplessis' eldest child, and there was the sworn testimony of Dr. Reynaud, since dead. These affidavits Mr. McKinley had seen and read. Against that, the only proof which now remained of the justice of Joan de Plessis' claim was the fact that her mother and father went through a second form of marriage some time after the birth of their first child, Henriette. This fact was not denied, and, of course, it could be easily proved, if necessary. But even then it would in no way be conclusive. It implied the presence of a doubt in Captain Duplessis' mind, a doubt which the second marriage ceremony may have served to set at rest, but it in no way established the illegitimacy of his eldest daughter. In fact, the more Mr. McKinley spoke, the more convinced did everyone become that the theft of the papers had everything to do with the murder of the unfortunate Runa. She would not part with the proofs which meant her mistress's fortune, and she paid for her devotion with her life. Several more witnesses were called after that. The servants were closely questioned, the doctor was recalled, but in spite of long and arduous efforts, the coroner and jury could not bring a single real fact to light beyond those already stated. The Indian woman had been murdered. The papers which she always carried about her body had disappeared. Beyond that, nothing. An impenetrable wall of silence and mystery. The butler at Fordwich Castle had certainly missed the knife with which Runa had been killed, from its accustomed place on the morning after the murder had been committed, but not before, and the mystery further gained in intensity from the fact that the only purchase of chloroform in the district had been traced to the murdered woman herself. She had gone down to the local chemist one day, some two or three weeks previously, and shown him a prescription for cleansing the hair which required some chloroform in it. He gave her a very small quantity in a tiny bottle, which was subsequently found empty on her own dressing-table. No one at Fordwich Castle could swear to having heard any unaccustomed noise during that memorable night. Even Joan, who slept in the room adjoining that where the unfortunate Runa lay, said she had heard nothing unusual. But then the door of communication between the two rooms was shut, and the murderer had been quick and silent. Thus this extraordinary inquest drew to a close, leaving in its train an air of dark suspicion and of unexplainable horror. The jury returned a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown, and the next moment Lady Dabblekirk rose, and leaning on her niece's arm, quietly walked out of the room. End of Part 2 of the Fordwich Castle Mystery